I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. There have been a couple events in in recent history within our lifetime that I think have greatly shaped um, kind of an attitude and a mindset and mentality around waterfront. Um, One of them, September 11th, I feel like not many people know, but September 11th, boat crews evacuated between 400 and 500,000 civilians in less than nine hours from lower Manhattan. Um, the most amount of people by far that were evacuated. So as a means of national security, as a means of diversifying public transit, um, there's certainly value there. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you are listening to Spaces Podcasts. Thank you for coming back, everybody. In today's episode, we discuss waterfront architecture. We're joined by Dina Prastos, founder and CEO of Indigo River. Dina is trailblazing a new category in the industry as the first waterfront architect. And with her firm, Indigo River, they're focused on progressive waterfront architecture, resiliency, and climate adaptation. In the conversation, we discuss a lot of facets around the subject, like the typologies involved, the jurisdictions, blending design, technology, and nature, engineering, and we touch on climate and how our waterfronts are evolving. Michelle joins me to co-host this episode. And with all that said, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dina Prastos. So we had a conversation, uh, I don't even know, it was maybe last year, I think it was last year sometime, about urban parks. But the project that we sort of featured in that conversation was actually more of a waterfront project. Do you recall that conversation? Well, I do, but I also recall we've talked about a park down in Santiago, Chile. Yeah. I remember we kind of like went off, but but I certainly remember the water park uh, discussion or waterfront. Yeah. I shouldn't say water park, waterfront discussion. <laughs> yeah. So we, we touched on a little bit of what waterfront architecture is, uh, but we're going to get into it much more today. We have the world's first waterfront architect, uh, Dina Prastos. Uh, So she's joining our conversation today, but I'll let her give a little bit more insight into her background and and her company, Indigo River. Dina, thank you for joining us. 
Demetrius, Michelle, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to this conversation. Uh, like I mentioned with Michelle, we, we touched on waterfront architecture. Um, it was more of an urban park setting, but um, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you more about it. And I know that you also have a background in civil engineering, so we can get into some of the the more um, structural, technical side of the, the work as well. Um, and and did I also see a, a degree from a business degree from Harvard? Yes, not a full degree, but a certification program. Yes. Okay. All right. Well qualified. <laughs> so uh, to start, Dina, can you give us a little bit of background uh, on you and, uh, and Indigo River? Sure. So for me, I'm born and raised in Alaska. I studied architecture undergraduate, studied uh, civil engineering in a master's program. Uh, my career has focused primarily on the waterfront. I started working with a contractor on a design build project, the Staten Island Ferry Terminal, and from there kind of leaned into waterfront work at large and have bounced around New York Harbor in different capacities on contractor side, on the design engineer side, and finally as uh, as an architect uh, with my own firm, Indigo River. And Indigo River, a uh, women-owned transdisciplinary design firm that we focus on progressive waterfront architecture, resiliency, and climate adaptation. Uh, we do specialize in climate adaptation through waterfront solutions that seamlessly transcend the boundaries, starting with project inception all the way through execution uh, and final construction operations. Our team is comprised of many different disciplines. So my background, architecture and civil engineering, we have another traditionally trained architect. Um, I'll put kind of air quotes on traditional because our experience is anything but within the architecture field. But the other disciplines that we have within the practice include naval architects, professional engineer diver, geotechnical marine and coastal engineers, environmental and urban planners, and climate adaptation specialists. So a lot of different specialties, but all focused on the waterfront. Very cool. Now, when you think of waterfront architecture, I'm sure a lot of people have something in mind that's pretty basic and straightforward. How would you define waterfront architecture? So anything in the littoral zone, and the littoral zone is defined as of or relating to a shoreline. So that's really the transitional area between open water and an upland space. So often there are, you know, great changes in elevations that help define that. Different typologies that I would classify within waterfront architecture include port facilities, marinas, wharfs, keys, breakwaters, residential, even at the scale of residential piers and, and boat launches and boat lifts. So yeah, really anything that enables access to the water or separates and creates a boundary between the water and, and the upland. So sometimes it's, you know, bulkhead structures or cribbing structures, or it's rehabilitation of a natural shoreline. So you, you talked about your, your work is anything but uh, traditional. Can you kind of expand a little bit on that? Uh, I understand that you guys have kind of a unique approach and and sort of relationship with your clients, right? We do. And so I'll, I'll say kind of to maybe differentiate a little bit. I certainly, when I go on a site visit, I'll have, you know, standard PPE in my car, um, hard hat and steel toe construction boots, a vest. But oftentimes, or more often, I'll end up throwing on a pair of waders or a life jacket uh, to go out to see whatever it is that we're looking at. So encompasses some of, you know, what we think of as traditional architecture, but also encompasses um, a little bit kind of beyond the bounds of what, at least what I understood when I was studying architecture, it defined to be. Is your client primarily a public entity or is it private or maybe 50-50? We do mo focus more on larger scale municipal projects, um, but we still have, you know, the the homeowner that has a residence that wants to access and, you know, we want to create recreational access through his backyard, whether it's, you know, new stairs down from a seawall or a pier in a floating dock to access a vessel or a mooring offsite. Um, so it, it really ranges scale, which is something I particularly enjoy because it's not, um, there's no two projects that are the same and there's no two clients that are the same. It makes you rethink the vocabulary that you're using when you're speaking with someone that's not technical within the profession and you're explaining what, you know, the title range means for their gangway and how it's going to change elevation if it has a floating structure at the end of it um, and become steeper at times or shallower at times. And then the flip side of that, looking at speaking with, uh, oftentimes we're a subconsultant on a larger team. Um, so then we're using, you know, business to business jargon and 
words that are, you know, highly technical, speaking to other consultants or engineers within the field or asset managers on the on the operation side. To give listeners a little bit of a understanding of some of the work that you do, can you talk a little bit about maybe one project and and sort of walk us through what that process looks like when when you're working with a client? Sure. So I'll um one project that's currently under construction, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit, I think it exemplifies some different services that we offer, but we got involved with the Wildflower Studios, which is Robert De Niro's film studio, vertical film studio in New York. It's located in Astoria, Queens, um, and it's situated on a creek, Steinway, Steinway Creek, um, and it is you know off of the East River near LaGuardia. Um, and so when we initially got involved, our scope was the shoreline. So there was a kind of derelict shoreline that had previous cribbing structures that had fallen into disrepair. Um, and, and they weren't using the, the shoreline for anything. They had kind of as, as much of New York at one time or another had turned their back on the water and, you know, was focusing on land connectivity. Um, and so when we first got involved, it was focusing on, we actually initially looked to see if we could enable waterfront um, or water, you know, recreational access to the water. And it was ruled out early in due diligence, but um we ended up stabilizing the shoreline to different types of treatment. One, you know, riprap shoreline where we had a little bit more horizontal space to build back. Uh, and then there was another typology, which was ended up being a precast seawall that we put in place on top of old cribbing. Um, so that enabled a park to go on top of it. We worked with the landscape architect to help, you know, design a boardwalk and ways to interact with nature other than getting in the water. Um, and so that was the initial scope. And so we got involved from, you know, early due diligence, um, site investigation, all the way through construction drawings and, and permitting. And I will say about the waterfront, it is one of the most heavily regulated spaces in general. Um, and the agencies having jurisdiction are many and many different motivations. So um, in New York State, typically we'll, you know, around 30% schematic design when we have an idea of what type of treatments we'll use for the waterfront. We have an idea of what the environmental impacts will be. We file a joint permit application that goes to federally the Army Corps of Engineers, who distributes it to NOAA and other agencies as well. We submit as well to the Department of State, um, Office of General Services, as well as Department of Environmental Conservation. And in cases where there is an outfall, which this one was had one, um, also Department of Environmental Protection. So there are many agencies. Um, and that's just, you know, early on at, you know, schematics. And then we engage in a conversation with each of them independently and, you know, keep them all conform sets as we update. And it's a very intensive process. Um, but then once we kind of have firmed up, you know, what the impacts are, what our broad strokes decisions are, we refine it for construction. And then at that time, it'll go into um, the city. In this case, small business services has jurisdiction over waterfront structures. So that's kind of the equivalent of Department of Buildings for building structures. Um, so yeah, the permitting process is intense. And uh, on this project in particular, so we, because we're so comfortable working with the water, um, and because it is a waterfront site, and it was in a AE zone, um, a FEMA classified AE zone, which means, you know, the water is is a threat. There are vulnerabilities for the future building. Um, we also got involved upland for the building itself, which a great team of architects and engineers working on it. And really our role was to facilitate the flood mitigation measures. So we worked with Bjork Ingalls Group and Thornton Tomasetti and, and many other consultants as well to make sure that the flood mitigation strategies, you know, early stages of elevating occupiable programmatic spaces above the floodplain, above the design flood elevation, um, and then figuring out different areas that we could allow the water to inundate, um, should there be, you know, future sea level rise, um, storm surge, hurricane events. Um, and that process kind of opened our eyes to how differently we can use our skill set that we already kind of know how to work with the water on coastal sites, but also within buildings and within flood hazard areas to be able to help facilitate the other team members who aren't so versatile and, and don't know these waterfront codes as, as intimately as we do. Yeah. Let me, let me back up to break <laughs> this down a little bit on, on a couple of fronts. Uh, one, what is cribbing? Uh, so cribbing is similar to like a Lincoln log assembly where you have horizontal timber members and you stack them and they kind of uh, intersect at the corners. Uh, and then oftentimes you'll backfill it with rock or other de other debris to keep it filled with material. Sometimes you'll put flowable concrete in as well. It was a historical typology that was popular in that you didn't need heavy equipment or machinery to build it. You could have even, you know, a father and son 
go out to site at low tide and, and lay down these members by, by hand um, and build it up and stack it up and then backfill behind. So there are a lot of historical structures that use that typology. Typically now when we find it, if it's intact and in good condition, we can build up off of it. Or uh, sometimes depending on what the total impacts are, agencies will recommend that we remove it and build a more lean, less less impactful structure. So that could be, you know, two, two piles and a pier instead of a 10 by 10 area of fill. So is that like a, a platform or sort of a retaining feature to retain soil? It's yeah, it's a retaining feature that is a structure to emerge out of the water and build the top. Okay, got it. And then the other part that I wanted to talk a little bit about was, uh, I think he talked about sort of firming up the soil uh, at that coastline, if I'm if I heard you right, uh, can you talk a little bit about that process and what are you trying to do through that, and what does that help you get? Sure. So when we stabilize the shoreline, one treatment is often to put riprap, which are you know large rocks that have a have a certain setback and slope to them um, that they're stacked sequentially in order of size so that the upland area is stabilized and that no further erosion can occur. Got it. And then the last part that I wanted to uh, to break out of the, the last uh, segment was dealing with the city uh, and all of those varied agencies. I assume being a the waterfront architect, you've developed sort of this understanding and relationship working with all of those cities. Can you or, or agencies? Can you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe just a few unique things that, that each agency is kind of looking for or maybe what their biases are or anything like sure, that? Sure, yeah, what, what the motivations are behind and, and what how we analyze. Certainly when we put forth a proposal for you know a proposed structure, we look at very closely in the process as we're deciding what the, you know, the proposed structure will be, we'll look at many alternatives. And so a big part of the application process for all of the agencies includes a very thorough alternatives analysis. So why are we choosing, you know, a steel pile supported structure as opposed to a cribbing structure? Um, And that will speak to, for the Army Corps, for example, they're looking to minimize additional fill in the rivers or in the water bodies. So they want to make sure that the navigation can stay open, the channels aren't obstructed, the habitat isn't affected or minimize the the impacts to the environment. Uh, certainly with the Department of Environmental Conservation, a similar motivation in that we're looking at how much area is being shaded in addition to what that fill is looking like. So there are a couple metrics that we have in, our, in the back of our mind early on as we're considering different types of structures and justifying them through an alternatives analysis of saying, you know, we considered this alternative, but it has a greater shading impact. We considered this alternative, it had greater fill. So as we go through the exercises, we're documenting what that thought process is and presenting it. And, and oftentimes we'll submit what the justification is, what the alternatives are, what we deem the impacts to be. And at that point, once the different agencies have a jurisdiction uh, review it, we'll engage in a conversation with them and a dialogue about you know, if there's any other conditions that they thought of that we didn't, or if there's any other considerations that we can look at moving forward to affect the design. And so that's also something when you have four or five different bodies looking at the same plan, and you start changing something for one, you have to have a conform set and update the others, and that might affect their early comments. So it can be a complex process to to navigate and to keep a current set moving forward with design. So that's also something just in scheduling waterfront projects, Oftentimes that regulatory review will put the project more or less at a standstill until we get a good enough feel from the agencies that, you know, it's safe to move forward without the threat of, you know, having to rework a whole bunch because what we had submitted wasn't permittable. Now let's take a brief break from this conversation and we'll get back to Dina after a quick nod to our sponsors. Hello, Spaces listeners. Demetrius here. The other day I was on Instagram and I saw Michelle traveling the world again. I think she was in London this time. Now if you're a frequent traveler like her, or want to live vicariously through a frequent traveler, our new sponsor is your ticket. Travel by Design, an original podcast from Marriott Bonvoy. In this podcast, host Hamish Kilburn, editor of Hotel Designs, speaks with architects, designers, 
and visionaries who dive deep into their designs and highlight what connects us to the world's most extraordinary travel experiences. If you know me, you know my passion for storytelling and audio production, and this show delivers. Their episode on El Mangrove, a hotel in the mangrove jungle in Costa Rica, really immerses you in the experience of the hotel. From a secluded overwater villa in the Maldives to a trendy hotspot in downtown LA, Hamish and the team do a great job highlighting the often overlooked nuances of design, the benefits design brings to guests, and by the end of each episode, I'm sure you'll want to travel. Beyond just the great quality and storytelling, these episodes are super easy to listen to. That Costa Rica episode is actually just over 12 minutes, so it's a great one to test out the show. Check out Travel by Design. All you have to do is simply scroll down to our show notes, click the Travel by Design link, and easily listen today. Hey, Demetrius here. As you may know, Spaces is part of Gable Media, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. Gable empowers AE professionals just like you to better serve the world. Now, through the strategic development of a brand new membership platform, we are eliminating the traditional industry boundaries and information bottlenecks that we all experience. But we need your help. Please go to gablemedia.com members and pick your top three initiatives that you believe will have the greatest impact on your growth, including a continuing education program, VIP access to expert forums and private Q&As, community boards, special freebies, and more. Go to gablemedia.com members and let us know what you'd like to see. Small firm entrepreneur architects, get ready to build a better business with the Entree Architect podcast, where business meets architecture. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, the host of Entree Architect podcast. Join me every week for inspiring interviews with passionate people that share proven strategies to help you build a better business. If you think there is a problem, one, you can't make a move until you have a plan in place. The accountability chart really helps plan, okay, for the business six to 12 months out, this is what we need. We cover it all from financial management to marketing, sales, productivity, and beyond. There's two sides of it, right? So there's the one when you don't have any work. So you're like, well, I'm either going to charge enough to be profitable or I'm going go to go out of business. Or you have so much work and you have backlog and you don't need any more work. So you charge way more. I'd also say lagging measures, one of the best, like the best, best, best. <laughs> so for any client, for any professional service um, company, if you're going to take one thing away from what we're talking about today, is to look at a number called the labor efficiency ratio. Entree Architect is not just a podcast. It's your secret weapon for success. With over 500 episodes, it's one of the longest running architecture podcasts in the world. You're sure to find the information you need to elevate your business. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now and join the community of small firm entrepreneur architects building better businesses. I'm assuming that you're the, the vast majority of the work your firm and that you work on are in and around the Manhattan, New Jersey, New York area, right? Which has a, I mean, obviously there's the the national agencies like FEMA and mm-hmm. Army Corps, right? But mm-hmm. then I'm sure there's more specific agencies that are unique to New York State or unique to New Jersey. So how transferable is the work that you and your firm does to other agencies? I mean, like in California, which is where Demetrius and I both sit, you know, we have the California Coastal Commission, um, which is a beast of an organization, a beast of an agency, right? (laughs) You you put that in a project and it's like you can assume 24 to 36 months of additional processing time and and maybe even longer depending on the project. So how transferable are, are kind of the skills of, of your firm and the skills of what you're doing as a waterfront architect to other jurisdictions, other areas, I mean, worldwide, internationally, or maybe just within the United States? So, yeah, certainly they are transferable. We, I'd say probably 80% of our business is in and around New York Harbor, which does include predominantly New York, certainly New Jersey, Connecticut even. 
Um, we do work in other states up and down the coasts, both east and west coast. We also work in, in Canada, Toronto. So it, it is transferable. And at that point, it's a matter of understanding what the regulatory environment is in that state. Sure. Um, a lot of the time it's, you know, the same same considerations are being made, but there might be slightly different nomenclature for that state. Um, and it's just a matter of, you know, familiarizing with the local jurisdiction and making sure that you're answering and, and preemptively providing the, the documentation for them to conduct a thorough review. I wanted to back up a little bit to just some of the, you know, I think it's really easy for people to understand if you're an architect that designs buildings, whether that's office or hospitality or a residence or a new home community. And likewise, it's very easy to understand architects that are landscape architects and they're designing parks and they're designing, or, or even they're doing land planning, right? They're, they're creating mm-hmm. site plans for cities. Your discipline seems to maybe be a cross between both landscape architecture architecture and design, like literally on the water, um, whether mm-hmm. that be dock design, maybe, maybe I'm not capturing it correctly. So can you just elaborate on your firm, your discipline, what it means to be a waterfront architect? Is that, you know, are you building, like if someone said, hey, you know, this is a waterfront parcel, there's the considerations of of the design that that are on the water, but then also, you know, our pro forma shows that we're going to develop or the intent is to develop a, a 45 unit multifamily building. I mean, do you get into that 45 unit multifamily building or is that someone else's discipline? Can you just we kind of do. elaborate? Yeah. Sure. So I'll, I'll step back for a moment and just kind of assert what it is as an architect we're licensed to do. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's commonly a misconception, um, even within the practice, uh, but certainly outside kind of the public's perception of what an architect is licensed to do. Probably nine out of 10 times you ask, a random person, what is what is an architect licensed to do? And they'll say something to the effect of, you know, design a building or render pretty graphics or illustrations or not quite capturing the entirety of what an architect is licensed to do. And that is very clear and CARB outlines for their licensing procedure. It's, it's really the architect uh, asserting their agency to protect the health, safety and welfare of the public in the built environment. So there's nothing about design. There's nothing about buildings um, in that, you know, what an architect is licensed to do. So I'll, I'll start there and, and um, assert that, you know, within the built environment encapsulates a lot. Um, so w- within my area of focus, certainly on the waterfront at the edge of where the land meets the water, you're right in that it, it overlaps many different disciplines. And it's in large part why we have a, a largely multidisciplinary team. But I'll, I'll also kind of back up to what an architect was, what their role in society was, what their responsibilities were historically, and kind of what the trends are that I see we've we've come to now in that, you know, historically, look at the Renaissance architect, the master builder, encapsulated a lot of certainly construction, certainly engineering, certainly design, and design to include landscapes or urban planning, um, and so if, if you look at that, you know, the lens of what an architect had purview over then, and you kind of look at what's going on now, something I, I have a deep concern about the future and the trajectory of the profession at large is it feels almost as if we started with a lot on the table and other professions have come in and kind of carved out landscape architecture, design thinking, urban planning, and left architects with not a whole lot. And so architects have almost been backed into the corner and self-fulfilling prophecy of we design buildings where, you know, we're architects, we design buildings. And it's in this repetitive loop that we've almost lost the imagination of really what it is that we have agency to do. So to get back to your question of, of what I work on and kind of why I see it as, you know, architecture um, is that, you know, within the built environment, certainly the shorelines are within the built environment and they absolutely must be engineered, but they also must be designed. Um, and so the different typologies that architects need to take into consideration at the, you know, planning scale, at the individual site scale, at the detail scale, include port facilities, ferry facilities, uh, marinas. And to your point about, are we doing, you know, a pro forma on how many units um, we do for a marina? We'll say, this is how many slips. This is how much they're charging per square foot. This is your seasonal occupancy that we anticipate. So we do go pretty deep within um, what we know, which is waterfront and waterfront businesses. Um, We have uh, our professional dive engineer on our team is a, a port specialist. So he looks at port operations, how the how technology within ports is changing, how 
you know, in Europe, many of the vessels are changing over to electric ferries um, and electric vessels. And so what that means for us here, and certainly within emerging fields like renewable energies and offshore wind, and what that means for our port facilities and how they must adapt. So we are pretty deep within whatever goes on on the waterfront. Um, if it's, you know, ferry commuter services and ridership analyses, or if it's performance for a marina business, um, or if it's just, you know, a, a homeowner that wants to shore up their backyard and, and defend against, you know, future sea level rise or enable waterfront access to the river via a pier and a dock. Do you think that you could do what you do and, and be who you are without your civil engineering background? Um, I, I do. Um, yeah. The reason, so when I finished undergrad, I, again, I probably a common misconception of not feeling confident in my technical abilities. I took the opportunity to lean into getting a, a master's, um, a graduate degree in, in civil engineering. Um, and that was just purely out of my own maybe insecurity of, you know, the technical understanding I had finishing architecture school, which face it, everyone has. Um, but when I, um, and similarly, I finished the civil engineering program and I had certainly more confidence within, you know, the highly technical calculations, but I didn't feel like I had a common sense approach to how and why something is built and what the labor is thinking as they're building it. And, and I really wanted insights there. So I focused on going into self-performed contracting. Uh, to understand at, at the practical level how materials are coming to site, how they're being assembled, who's putting them together, what the conversations are, where the problems come up, um, to be able to have each of those kind of vocabularies and, and conversations in my head when it came back around to design. So I wouldn't say it's a requisite to have an engineering degree at all. I, I certainly think even within, um, and I'm not knocking by any means other, you know, parallel disciplines and professions of, of landscape architecture and and uh, urban planning, I deeply believe that we should be more specialized as architects, as well as generalized, which we have the generalized side of things down. But um, look at other professions, look at engineering. Can you imagine if we didn't have separate tracks for mechanical, electrical, you know, the different disciplines, structural, civil, if we didn't have the different specialties, same thing with medicine, if we just had general doctors and we didn't have a specialist for neurology or right. cardiology like it's it's very strange to me that architecture has not embraced the notion of whether it's a specialization or a board certification or a, a separate license it's strange to me and i think it's you know looking at the profession into the future something critically important to focus on you talked about your team i mean your team so how big is your team we have 15 people 15 people okay I mean, some of the things that you've touched on, my head is spinning because I'm like, okay, you're you're talking about beyond design. I mean, you you said that, and and it's obvious what your specialty is, what Indigo River specialty is, goes far beyond just design and and making something pretty and functional, right? You're well, there's the functional aspect, but then there's like literally the scientific aspect of we have tide coming in, or we have a hundred year flood a flood event, or we have a five hundred year flood event, or like. Right, you have all these these components that are far beyond just architecture design. They go into the realm of of science and geology and environmental considerations. And so, within that fifteen person discipline, are there people that are not architecturally trained that are maybe experts in geology or experts in? I mean, do we you- do. We have certainly. So we have a geotechnical engineer that looks at you know soil mechanics. We have a a geology soils expert um, that looks at, you know, wetland delineation and uh, the ecology and the environment. Um, so we are very diversified and we really only have one other individual who's a classically trained architect. And not to say that we are not growing, but we're, we value the difference um, of expertise that our team brings. So Certainly, as we grow, we'll we'll probably add more architects to the team, but or traditional architects, I should say. But our focus, as you said, it, it's not the traditional building. It's really infrastructure, and it's often at a different scale with different uh, natural forces uh, at the front of mind. Yep. Another lens to that question is, since you are doing a lot of more infrastructure type typology, what does the architectural training bring to that that's different from if you went to any other more straight civil engineer? Certainly the the lens of looking at everything with, you know, a critical eye. Um, so the, the critical thinking that I think you do learn in studio, um, the iterative process of kind of not settling for content, but exploring many different options and, and the visualizations as well. So we try not to get caught up and we'll, we're very careful when we 
begin to sketch or render and, and show a client something because we want to, you know, the picture's worth a thousand words. As soon as we show a picture and, and a client gets glued to something, we, we don't want to back ourselves into a corner. So we want to keep options open. So we'll often, you know, go through a very iterative process up front within our due diligence and our regulatory research. We'll, you know, file FOIAs on a property to understand what, you know, Freedom of Information Act, what previously was permitted there, what's the history on the site. Um, but also there's so much stakeholder engagement and community engagement and a dialogue that often happens, um, even with the operations team that love engineers, work with many of them, but oftentimes they, they almost want to be insulated from some of those conversations and they're important conversations to have to take shape and form the direction of a project and the trajectory of the project. Um, so early on, I find having conversations not only with, you know, capital about their budgets, but also the operations team about anticipated maintenance. Um, and those aren't always conversations that, in my experience, I found engineers to be having early on. Um, so certainly that kind of human side of uh, design as well as environmental. Are there technologies or things that are going to change around port design, uh, ferry design, you touched on kind of electrical ferries being one of them, but that's, I mean, what else is out there just in, in terms of something that's changing or evolving or that will be different in five years or 10 years or 20 years as we think about waterfront architecture and um, considerations around that? Yeah, I think there's certainly a, a mindset embedded within, and I mentioned it before, that for a period of time, we kind of turned our back on the waterfront or we polluted and kind of dumped into the rivers and turned our back on them, didn't appreciate them as a natural resource, nor as a natural means of infrastructure. Um, and what I mean by that is, in addition to certainly electric vehicles and charging stations changing the landscape, um, offshore wind and having marshalling ports and facilities linearly down the river as we begin to assemble and, and send out offshore wind rigs, there's also... I'd say emerging within the industry, there are different trends, certainly with regard to materials um, and approaches with, you know, nature-based solutions, biomimicry, uh, understanding a little bit more of our, our effect on the environment and our means to have a symbiotic relationship with the environment as opposed to just, you know, vertical wall structures that are not conducive to habitat. Um, and, and certainly other, other technological transformations, abilities to, you know, scan a, a shoreline that maybe at one point was plumb and, and you know, had all right angles and now it's deteriorated for, you know, different animals have eaten away at it or the water has eaten away at it. Um, so to be able to scan, I, my brother-in-law is a dentist and I remember talking to him, he was putting something in my mouth and scanning my teeth and, and figuring out the exact, you know, volume of, of whatever trays he was going to put in. And I remember having the conversation that, wow, that's really cool. We can, we should do that on shoreline so we know exactly what the volume of concrete we need or what, whatever it is that the technology is there. Um, but it's a means to kind of think about how we treat now with technology, the, the projects differently, that it doesn't need to be, you know, certainly we feel verify measurements all the time, but oftentimes we're encountering, you know, natural forms that aren't the easiest to translate into, you know, our digital process. Um, so now there are means to do that, which I, I think is super exciting. What are your thoughts around um, the idea of waterfront being functional and industrious versus visitor serving and recreational or even for the benefit of an individual homeowner and individual user? I mean, is there, is there a ratio that you think is appropriate? Uh, there is, and it, it's it's for both. Um, the waterfront is for all, and that can mean both through recreational means, but also through industry. So we've you know conducted many analyses that look at you know short sea shipping solutions around the harbor. How can we get trucks off of the road? There's a lot of congestion. There's congestion pricing coming in. Um, so how can we get trucks off the road and and get cargo onto vessels, even from Port of Elizabeth and New Jersey in and around the city so that we're not having so many trucks coming in through, you know, one of five tunnels or bridges. So uh, there's certainly a, a means and a, and a reason to keep the maritime industry open. And there's also a means to connect people with nature. Uh, one of the organizations that we work closely with um, is Waterfront Alliance. And a, maybe in the last 10 years, they put out what they call the Waterfront Edge Design Guidelines, Wedge. And what it is, is essentially lead for the waterfront. So they have kind of a, a different criteria based on what type of uh, site that you're developing. And the focus is really to promote resiliency, ecology, and access to the water's edge. And so that access Sometimes it's recreational and sometimes it's for industry and for trade. 
Are there concepts being discussed about evolving the maritime and uh, and, and like the shipping ports, the way that they work? And what, what would some of those be? Always. I mean, there's, um, I, I feel like within any um, harbor, there's usually a harbor steering committee that's looking at specifically what kind of vessel traffic uh, is coming in, how much is recreational, how much is trade or kind of manufacturing based. Um, so those, yeah, those conversations are taking place and they, they affect the zoning of the, the different waterfront parcels and how you can develop on them and whether it's, you know, residential and does it have a water dependent use or is it to enable recreational access or is it for trade and for maritime industry to, to thrive and to, for example, you know, have an offshore wind port to be able to bring in renewable means of energy. How do you see societal changes affecting this, this industry, this waterfront industry and, um, you know, the people side of that. Is there anything that you're seeing that is going to affect that, whether it's desires to to reduce pollution or, or anything like that? So well, certainly becoming one with nature certainly is is on the fore of mind. But there have been a couple events in, in recent history within our lifetime that I think have greatly shaped um, kind of an attitude and a mindset and a mentality around waterfront. Um, one of them, September 11th, I feel like not many people know, but September 11th, Boat crews evacuated between 400 and 500,000 civilians in less than nine hours from lower Manhattan. Um, the most amount of people by far that were evacuated. So as a means of national security, as a means of diversifying public transit, um, there's certainly value there. Other societal changes, certainly re-embracing marital trade, uh, maritime trades and operations as, you know, workforce development. There's much that we've outsourced and now are, are coming to understand the the importance to deglobalize physical resources as opposed to continuing to order things, you know, from across the world. Um, so if we can use our natural infrastructure, rivers and water bodies to move things even just within a state, within a within the country, um, there's certainly value there to have, you know, independence from um, some of the, the global situations going on. I mean, anecdotally in California, I've never understood why we don't have a people mover um, in the Pacific Ocean. I mean, San Diego to Orange County to LA to Malibu to Ventura to Santa Barbara. I mean, it's absurd, right? We're log jammed on the four or five freeway and the five freeway. And here we have this amazing resource that we could be really utilizing as just a mode of transportation. Yeah, there have been many opinion pieces, even in and around New York Harbor, around the New York City Ferry, um, which is a project I worked on, which um, really looked to join many disparate ferry systems under one roof so that you could have and transfer and uh, connect underserved communities with a means of public transportation. Um, so the New York City Ferry relaunched in 2017, and there was there have been criticisms of how heavily it is subsidized by the government but again to the to the larger conversation of national security and diversification of transit options and to be able to connect communities that don't have access to you know whether it's bus or train or or if they are it's you know a two-hour commute as opposed to a a 10-minute commute by water because it's series of islands and um, not much distance separating some of these communities but the the public transit means otherwise aren't sufficient um, for commuters to be able to have you know additional options for work. I'm curious about what your favorite project has been. It's hard to pick one favorite. I feel like so we work on a lot of, and many times we'll be a, a sub-consultant with a very specific scope on larger scale projects like East Coastal Resiliency, where we're focusing specifically on some of the logistics, um, you know, barge sequencing of, of construction equipment and materials and um, staging of the equipment. And there's a lot of opportunity for creativity within logistics for construction um, so that's kind of an atypical project, but it's a, you know, at large scale, it's a phenomenal project to be working on. Um, other projects like uh, Manhattan or Harlem River Greenway is connecting the, the last segment around Manhattan so that um, pedestrians or cyclists can ride a loop around the island. It wasn't available previously. We're working on that. And that's one area where looking at, you know, historically what was going on kind of in northern Manhattan along the shorelines or many slips and many different types of historical structures that almost like forensics, understanding what was going on previously and how we can, you know, with minimal impact and there are highways built above these shorelines that we can't, you know, just excavate and put in new, but how we can kind of augment what's there and create a, you know, continuous strip around the island. Um, so some exciting projects like that. And, and frankly, one of my favorite things is 
working at different scales. So even the, the backyard homeowner who, who wants a new seawall to be, you know, more resilient and, and less vulnerable to sea level rise or storm surge, um, or, or wants, you know, just a, a small pier to access a boat, really enjoy the, the versatility of the types of projects that we're able to work on. Do you know, what's, what's one thing that, uh, that's sort of a major consideration that pops up in your mind that a lot of clients would actually never think about? Or people in general wouldn't even con- it wouldn't even cross their mind for these type of projects that you work on. So the connection to nature, um, and, I, and I think that's just on a personal note, kind of why I leaned in and gravitated towards working on the waterfront. Because in an otherwise concrete jungle, um, sure there are pockets of parks and, and nature to be found, but anytime you go to the edge of an island, regardless of what that edge treatment is, just on the other side of it, it's nature, it's water. The water's moving, tides are going up and down. So the ability to interact and engage with nature and and to optimize that and see it as an opportunity um, is not always recognized. And so what that, I mean, different ways to to see the water as an opportunity, certainly um, with regards to even to the construction process, understanding that there are a whole nother means for constructing. And in New York City, we have many limitations with regards to what size segments can be brought in, what the turn, what, the, what fits on the truck, what the turn radius is. So you're breaking things down often only to build them back up together. And so when you work on the waterfront, you have a different opportunity to prefab different elements and bring them in by water and set them and um, kind of take advantages of scheduling um, and, or make up for, for different schedules. There are other Scheduling impacts, certainly um, environmental considerations for different fish spawning seasons that have moratorium where you can't do in water work. So there's a lot at play that's unique to the waterfront. And looking at the one thing I'll say in, in terms of kind of climate adaptation and, and flood resiliency when we work on those types of projects is understanding that adaptation is far more complex than, you know, putting down a few isolated bits of infrastructure it requires really redressing a range of interconnected hazards and vulnerabilities and exposures at a regional scale, not just on a site. Um, so certainly the the environmental considerations as well as some of the logistical and scheduling items that, that come up that are unique to the waterfront. So Dina, if someone were to, to become the second waterfront architect, <laughs> uh, what's one thing, maybe it's one of the things that you just mentioned, but what's one thing that you would advise that they consider when taking on this industry of waterfront architecture? So I think there needs to be a an appreciation for nature and not only the man-made. Certainly, you go into architecture, you have an appreciation for design and our ability to design man-made structures, but that interface and the interconnectivity and the dependencies upon nature as well and an appreciation and respect for the different natural forces that you'll encounter. Um, and so that, I mean, born and raised in Alaska with a stream in my backyard, like any way that I can be in touch with nature, I appreciate at my core. And I feel like that was one way or this is one way for me to engage with nature on a regular basis through my work. So I feel like it depends on what what values individuals have, but there is a scale of impact um, as well in terms of not only, you know, project size, but in terms of longevity of projects. Oftentimes infrastructure projects have a much longer life cycle and we're not necessarily designing for the client right now or the end user right now. We're designing for, you know, a 50 year life cycle or up to you know, 2080 storm surge. So there's a different scale of, of impact that's necessary and, and to be appreciated. Thank you so much, Dina. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> uh, this has been super informative. Never even thought that I would be learning this much <laughs> about waterfront architecture. Um, <laughs> what's the best way that people can follow along with you? Uh, so, I mean, we have our website, indigoriver.com. Uh, certainly on LinkedIn, I'm there. Or on Instagram, there's many ways to get a hold of me. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you so much, Dina. Thank you, Michelle, for joining me again on this. Thank you to the listeners for listening. We'll talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you again to Travel by Design for their support of this episode. Behind the facade of every world-class hotel, there's a story waiting to be heard. Make sure you hear that story by simply scrolling down to our show notes and click the Travel by Design link to listen today. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. 
That's G-A-B-L-Media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.